Well, it's wonderful to be with you today and to have the privilege of uh, opening God's Word together with you. Special welcome to those who may be viewing online and to the younger folks who are not normally with us and to all of those who have uh, custody of them day by day, week by week. I'm especially grateful to the session and to our pastors for inviting me uh, to speak on this occasion. I think I understand a little bit of the logic of this. Said Sharf's a simple guy. Just make it easy for him. Pick a Sunday that helps him with his outline. How about the Sundays whose numerical designation is 123, 123? Some of you will get that tomorrow sometime. I have actually been led not by the numerical designation, but what has already been alluded to in our service, that this is New Year's Eve. And so many of us think about the year past, but we also think about the year ahead. So the text that I've selected speaks to those who are planning for next year. But as I reflected on the context there, I thought this text also helps us complete what we have been thinking about. We've been looking in John 1, in the prologue of John's Gospel, about the first Advent. And of course, Advent is really plural in the church calendar. There are two Advents. There's the first coming, which we have been celebrating, and there is the second coming, which I want to suggest we should also celebrate because it will be that event in which The living triune God completes what he has begun. Salvation history will be wrapped up. And because it is something for which you and I, by the mercies of God, can be ready. That text, as you'll see in your bulletin, or even better if you have your own copy of the scriptures with you, is in three paragraphs, and I want to read them sequentially by paragraph and then say a few things about them because if you look at those verses you will notice that the first two paragraphs are targeted toward subsets of the listeners this would have been read in church so it would have been uh, at least professing believers or their friends come now you who say that's a subgroup not everybody says what's going to happen in the context Chapter 5, verse 1, come now you rich. That is certainly a subset of those who were present. But in verse 7 of chapter 5 of James, uh, chapter 5, be patient, therefore, brothers. In other words, brothers and sisters, all of you. So let me pray for all of us as we listen and for me as I speak. Father, you know what you want us to hear as you speak from your word. Help me to get out of the way sufficiently that what you are saying to us uh, corporately and individually will actually get through to us, and we will not only hear your word, but we'll heed it. And so everyone within the sound of my voice will be ready for the second coming. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what we have here, as I've hinted at already, are two targeted warnings And any time we have a warning in Scripture, we should take it not simply as a warning against don't do this now, 
but also a warning, don't aspire to do this in the future, which will become relevant, I think, as we look at the first two targeted warnings, but then that general directive in the final of the three paragraphs. So here the first targeted warning toward those who plan. I'm in James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let me say immediately that there's absolutely nothing wrong with righteous planning. I mean, how can there be? The living God himself planned our salvation from eternity past, and anything that God himself does cannot be sin if we copy him in the way he did it or something that reflects the way he did it. No, this is a warning against presumption, a 59-cent word for meaning failing to take into account something in the future that we cannot control. The Father planned our salvation. The Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh planned. There was a way he did his ministry, knowing when he was to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross for us. The apostles planned, but none of that was done presumptively. This is a warning against presumption. Listen again to the self-talk in verse 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, presumably to others or to yourself, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's wrong with that? Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, much less the rest of the year. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You see, sometimes our self-talk is actually heresy. We say things about ourselves that really aren't true, such as, I've got control of 2024, I'm going to plan it, and it's going to happen. There's this phrase in our language, we want people in business who make it happen. Well, We need to monitor our self-talk for that kind of heresy. Well, what's the alternative? Verse 15 gives it to us. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, the phrase, Lord willing, or God willing, is not meant to be a shibboleth that we all now beginning today, take onto our lips because we know we're supposed to. It is reflective of the way we've let the Spirit of God correct our thinking. Ruth and I have a friend, longtime friend we knew from our days in Toronto. 
He was an Egyptian with his wife, an Egyptian refugee during some troubles they had in that country in the 1950s. Came to Canada, and because of his life circumstances, almost every other sentence had the phrase, God's willing. God's willing. That's the way he said, Lord willing. If we ever needed something to remind us to think that way, how about the global pandemic? Isn't that a good reminder, graciously given by God, that we are not in control of our lives? We should say, Lord willing. Why? Well, in verse 16, notice how James labels this kind of behavior. As it is, that is the way you're talking to yourself or others, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And if that isn't searching enough, notice what he says in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This encompasses the whole range of what we call sins of omission. Things that we're supposed to do but don't do. I read not long ago of uh, a story about um, John F. Kennedy, the president who, when he was running for the presidency in 1960, asked LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, to be his running mate, but there were people in his party who didn't think too much of LBJ. They didn't like him. They didn't think he should be the running mate. So to calm those waters... Kennedy apparently said to his one of his aides, look, I'm 43 years old. I am not going to die in office. So the vice presidency doesn't mean anything. Do you think maybe that qualifies as arrogance and evil? But what about us? Are you monitoring your self-talk for things that really are not true for heresy, for evil, for arrogance, for sins of omission. How's this for an alternative bit of self-talk that you can say to yourself? If the Lord graciously gives me life and breath and strength, and if I'm sufficiently compassmentous, and he gives me wisdom. I will serve him to the best of my ability this year by, you fill in the blank. What's the spiritual gift that God has given you? If you're a follower of his, you've got at least one. And in this congregation, I know some of you have got a whole parcel of them. I will use that gift to the glory of God as he gives me strength and opens doors of opportunity. But it may also be a sin of omission. I read recently, and I have not been able to verify this statistic. It seems a bit large to me, but this news feed said that a quarter of all Americans are estranged from a family member. Broken relationship. Maybe the sin of omission is failing failing to take the initiative to clean up that broken relationship. I was convicted about that myself. I can do more. So that's the first focused warning. The second is in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5, and it is addressed to the wrongly rich. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep 
and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, a veiled reference to the second coming. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, also a reference to coming judgment. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, like the paragraph we just looked at, we need to interpret this very carefully. James is not here condemning having money. Abraham had lots of money. He was wealthy. Job was very, very wealthy. And they neither one was condemned for having money. What went wrong here was these people got their money in bad ways and they used it in bad ways. And here's the part that makes this passage sting a little bit. Remember who would have been here, there, to hear this text read people who thought they were okay being in church that is at least nominal christians i do not for assume for a moment that there's anybody sitting in this audience or in the sound of my voice as it's broadcast on the youtube channel who is guilty of this kind of sin but neither do i assume that there is not someone like this So let's let it speak to us because those first three verses give hints of and speak directly of evidence in the coming judgment. These rich people who got their wealth wrongly and used it wrongly are to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Why? Well, their riches have rotted and their garments are moth-eaten Their gold and their silver have corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The money they earn, verses 4 to 6 tell us, they got by fraud. The wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the Lord of hosts will hear that cry. They got it by fraud, and they used it to fund luxury and self-indulgence. Now, I am not going to stand here and tell you what God's definition of luxury is. But I do know that on a world scale, we are all rich people here, every one of us. And we may feel and may have justification for feeling we don't have that much left over at the end of the month. We may be closer to the boundary there of being within our budget than we would like. But these people whom James speaks against had full closets, but the moths lived there too. They had precious metals, which as we all know, they don't corrode, but he uses that metaphor to say where you parked your money you thought was secure. Not so. 
cryptocurrency investors beware. And your fattened bellies, well, that just shows that you were fattening yourself, and that's going to be evidence against you. God gives us money to meet our needs, but he also blesses us with excess so we can meet the needs of other people. Charles Spurgeon was certainly right when he said, money makes men proud. See the connection with the previous chapter, uh, paragraph? If we make money our God, it will make us like the devil. That's what he's speaking against here. Money is a wonderful servant, but it is a terrible master. Let me say it again. I hope no one here, I hope this shoe fits no one here. But as we think about 2024, we need to think about our aspirations. Some of us may not be all that well off now, but we aspire to be well off. Let us rather aspire to be rich in grace and in the things which make us like Jesus. So check your checkbook. What comes in? Did you get it righteously? What's going out? Are you using any that you can for the blessing of others? Like John Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And it was his goal at the end of his life. I think he had a couple of pieces of money and one silver spoon. That was it. And that was his goal, to come out just about even. I once served alongside a wonderful, godly senior pastor. who I was meeting with him one-on-one and he just reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, grabbed a fistful of notes and thrust them into my hands and said, take these, they so easily become my idol. My problem was I was pretty glad to receive what he gave. (laughs) Every one of us needs to examine our hearts. And may I say, since I'm not on the payroll, This is a good time to think about giving to our needs here. And let me encourage you and just testify that if you think of a tithe as a really good starting point, a tithe is a wonderful reminder that God supplies it all and he owns it all. And he loves to use it all in ways that get glory for his name. So, you and I can be ready for the second coming if we monitor our self-talk and heed what the Scripture says to correct it. Our lives are amiss. We may not live through 2024, and that's up to God. And as we monitor our checkbooks, both what's coming in and what's going out, to make sure that is not our God. And we're not using it to fatten ourselves for that day of judgment. The general directive is in verse, uh, verses 7 to 11, of chapter 5 of James. This, I think, is addressed to all of us. Be patient, therefore. That tells us it's connected to what he's just been saying. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. 
Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of the suffering and, and of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, the surprising thing about this paragraph is what James does not say. We would expect him to say, okay, therefore, make sure you're trusting in Jesus. If he's coming back, get that squared away. But remember, he is addressing people in church who would have already made that profession of faith, such as are assembled here. What is he saying to us? The answer is surprising And so he repeats it. Be patient. Just wait. Salvation history is not yet over. Be patient. Just wait. Establish your hearts. It's there in verse 7. Be patient. Therefore, brothers. Again, in verse 7, being patient like a farmer. Verse 8, you also be patient and establish your hearts. Again, in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience. And then later on in verse 11, blessed are those who remain steadfast. We are to be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord. And what we need as reformed people to remember is that when Jesus comes back to both save and to judge. This sets an agenda for us because our justification is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for those things we do after we have been justified. So that God is not saying to us, I have saved you so you can live any way you like, he has, he's saying, I have saved you so by the Holy Spirit I can make you like me. And if we re- re- neglect that by arrogantly assuming we're going to live forever or by amassing wealth and letting it become our God, he's saying, I'm going to have to deal with that. And I'm going to have to deal with that in your lives. Yes, praise God, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But those very same people addressed in Romans 8 are told to walk in the Spirit. And if we have resisted the Spirit's promptings and are doing things that are not honoring to God, He's going to have something to say to us on that great day of fruit inspection. When Jesus comes back, these Christians under oppression needed to be reminded. He comes back as judge. And that is actually very good news. He's saying, just wait. Just wait. The world is in a terrible place today as it was then. So James says to them, just wait and establish your hearts. What does that mean? I think that means establish your hearts in the gospel. What you profess to believe, keep on believing. Believe it from the heart. Trust that Jesus is going to finish what he began. 
God is going to prove himself both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He can hold those two things together in a way that we would find difficult. And so James gives these three examples. The farmer. The farmer waits. The early rain enabled him to plant the crop. The latter rain fills that crop out. No point in harvesting until the latter rains have come. What does that mean to us who are non-farmers? It means trust God to finish what he began. Trust him to uh, take this all the way to the end of salvation history and to vindicate himself and to affirm our choice. Or take the example of the righteous prophets in, in verse 10 as an example of suffering as these early Christians were. And of patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What did they do? Those prophets, especially Jeremiah and Isaiah, faced terrible opposition. Did they stop preaching? No. They kept on preaching. You know, we can't change the day that is set in eternity of the return of Jesus. But you may recall, and don't turn there, but in Second Peter uh, chapter 3... We're told that God doesn't want anybody to be lost. And he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the whole world, the whole universe, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God? God can change when that date is. That's fixed in God's mind in eternity. How in the world do we hasten something, the date of which we can't change? We do what the righteous prophets did. We keep sharing the gospel because that's why the second coming has been delayed so long. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. So our job in the meantime is keep talking about it. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep living it out. And then he gives the example of Job. Job who uh, suffered not just from Satan, but also from his friends. So that leads me to notice in verse 9 what the ungodly alternative to patient endurance and establishing our heart is. Do you see it there in verse 9? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you might not be judged. That is the ungodly alternative to being patient and establishing your hearts. Now, can I say a, a candid word to my generation? The others of you uh, can tune out on this. I think it could be the could well be the besetting sin of those of us who are of a a certain age. Why do we grumble? Well, it's because we it's a perceived injustice. Something is not right. And as we get older, we get more rigid, and we think, this is not right, and I'm going to gripe about it. I had a friend a few years ago, a colleague, who loved to tell me little jokes that he picked up various places, and he said, Greg, do you know the difference between the jet a retiree takes from the upper Midwest down to Florida and the retiree himself or herself who's on that plane? No, I don't. I don't know the difference. He said, well, when you turn the jet off, it stops whining. 
we've both grown older. I wonder if he would still tell that joke. It's tempting. It is tempting for us to grumble, and the text says, against each other. No. We are to be patient. We're to be patient and establish our hearts in the gospel. Because justice will not only be done, it will be seen to be done. And that is good news for everyone. Are, are there unjust wars right now? Oh, manifestly. Terrible things are happening. Do we pray against the wrongs? As we have power and authority, do we do something to address those? Yes. But the counsel of this text is just wait. Is there exploitation? Yes. It's awful. We're to hate it. Pray against it. Work against it when we can. But just wait. Are there liars who phone us up? and offer things that are not accurate or have robo robots that do that for them even. Yes. Just wait. Are there cyber criminals? Are there people who are con artists? Or any kind of evil you can imagine. The Bible does not pretend. It does not exist. It just says to us, just wait. When Jesus comes back, he will come back to save, but he will also come back to judge. Now, you, say, you may say to me, Craig, how in the world can you preach that as good news? Judgment will be terrible. The wrath of God is awful. Just listen as I read the global perspective on the judgment of God from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world will be established. It will never be moved. And why all of this boundless praise from every part of creation? He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth adore. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. It is actually part of the gospel. It is wonderful good news. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to apologize for God. Yes, the world's in a terrible shape. It's not his fault. And he'll fix it. When he comes back... Every justice will be paid for just as surely as our sins have been paid for on the cross. Why? Because in our text, verse 11 at the end, 
You have seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's why the delay. That's why he hasn't come back already. He's compassionate. He's merciful. Good news. You can be ready for the second coming. Just be patient and establish your heart in the gospel. Keep on believing what you have believed. Heed the warnings as they apply both to your present activity and to your aspirations for 2024. But above all, heed this directive. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Lord, may it be so in all of our lives.